0: Well, we're coming out of 2 Timothy, and uh, I really like 2 Timothy. And why I like it is because here you have Paul in his maturity. Here you have Paul, it would appear from what he says in chapter 4, really facing his death. Now, you can argue that, in fact, uh, he was expecting to die, but he was uh, released at that time, and he went further, spread the gospel in, in Spain, uh, etc., just as he intended, and that he died somewhat later. Um, and yet I uh, I have to say that that is uh, not directly stated in the scriptures and I really take Second Timothy as his swan song written to Timothy like a man writes to his best friend just as he's about to as he's about to die likewise when you read um, the, the final song of Moses and in fact the whole of Deuteronomy which was said by Uh, set by Moses in the last month of his life, possibly large amounts of it on the very last day of his life, which is why he keeps talking about, I tell you today, I tell you this day, uh, throughout Deuteronomy. Uh, I think you see likewise Moses in his final maturity. And it's the same here with Paul. Uh, You see a a man who really did run a, a great race, I suppose, The one who, after the Lord Jesus, perhaps spiritually developed more than any other man. And so you you see him in his time of maturity, writing, it seems, at the end of his life, at least when he certainly imagined that he was about to die. And it's significant that he writes to Timothy, and he writes to encourage Timothy. And I think there you see the real mark of the man, that he's, in his own time of need, he is thinking of others. And that is, of course, exactly the spirit of the Lord Jesus whom we're here to remember. That in the awful pain and uh, emotional uh, trauma of being about to die, you can see his continual care for other people. He was concerned about the thief next to him. He was concerned about forgiveness for the guys who were actually crucifying him, for they knew not what they did. He was concerned about the salvation of uh, us... Of the Jewish people. He was concerned about his mother, he was concerned about uh, the women there. He basically tells uh, John to take Mary away from the cross. It, it seems, uh, according to what Tacitus says, that people who stood around the, uh, the, the stake or the, uh, the cross of the people being crucified could themselves be be crucified for showing uh, solidarity with the one who was dying. And so, to look out of yourself in times of trouble, to look out of your own immediate pain to that of others, this is really a sign of maturity. You know how it is when you're ill. You tend to think only of yourself. Or let's say you're carrying something really heavy. You're just thinking of getting that great big box from A to B, and if you trample on a child's toy under your feet, well, that is, uh, that's not high on your list of uh, consciousness. And yet I think the way that Jesus in his time of dying and Paul in his time of dying looked out of themselves to the needs of others, this really is the essence of, of the cross. And so he writes here to Timothy very warmly. You can see how he really does uh, love Timothy so, so dearly. And he says, verse 3, that he thanks God, uh, and he has a a pure conscience in this. In other words, he's really sure he's telling the truth that every night and day he remembers Timothy because of, uh, verse 5, the unfeigned faith that is in you. And yet, it's also clear, reading through, just through Timothy 1, let alone the whole letter, that Timothy was some sort of weak. He says, verse 6, you need to stir up, and the Greek means to rekindle, the gift of God which is in you. God has not given us the spirit of fear, which it seems Timothy had, but of power and of love and of a restrained or controlled, self-controlled mind. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, verse 8. He encourages him, that, verse 9, that God really has saved us. And he says, verse 12, I am not ashamed. And so he's sort of encouraging uh, Timothy, verse 8, don't be ashamed. Verse 13, hold fast to the form of sound words that I've uh, given you. Keep what I gave to you, verse 14. And so... All the way through, it seems that Paul is writing here to encourage Timothy to, as he says, to rekindle, stir up, verse 6, to rekindle uh, his faith. And yet he says, I thank God night and day in my prayers because of your faith. So even though Timothy was at this time weak, uh, spiritually immature, Paul found great encouragement in that. And again you see the mark there of uh, spiritual maturity. It reminds me really of how Jesus sort of lets out a whistle of amazement when he encounters the centurion and he says, Wow, I never found such great faith, no, not in Israel. So Jesus who had faith that was in a dimension and to a level far above anyone else's, he was deeply encouraged by the faith of others. Now, this, I think, uh, is is what can really enrich uh, and uh, lift up spiritual life within the Ecclesia, in our relationships with each other, to a totally new dimension. If we are positive about the spirituality of others, even though Paul quite clearly sees Timothy's weak points, and that's why he's writing this letter in many ways. So then, it's not a case of being naive. It's not a case of just uh, naively talking about other people as if they're wonderful and turning a blind eye to a huge amount of weakness in them. No, he sees the weakness very clearly, and yet he focuses on that which is positive and is encouraged by it. You may like to just turn back a couple of pages to First Thessalonians chapter three, where he says, First Thessalonians three verse seven, brethren, we were comforted over you in all our affliction and distress by your faith for now we live if you stand fast in the Lord your faith encouraged us but now look at verse 10 he says night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith so their faith was in some sense lacking and Paul wanted that it would not be lacking and yet he was still encouraged by their faith this is very much the Spirit of Jesus, who, who says that he didn't come to blow out a smoldering wick, but to fan it into life. And so this focus on the positive in others is, I suppose, a reflection of how God looks at us. God counts us as if we are righteous, although we are not. He imputes righteousness to us. And we, in the same way, are to do that to others. But, as you see from these examples of Paul to Timothy and to the Thessalonians, this is not to be done in a a sort of cloud-cuckoo-land, naive kind of way. Now, if we can achieve this, this, as I say, is what stops relationships going stale. Be it marriages, be it relationships... uh, amongst co-workers, people who are members of an ecclesia, between parents and children, and children of parents, trying to perceive that which is good. Because there is some good in all of us. And not trying to hold people to uh, an unreasonable standard. Let's face it, we are all weak. And yet we are not totally weak. And I, I think you see uh, another window into all this in verse 15, where Paul says, This you know, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. And uh, it's that uh, verb there, apostropho, to apostatize. <clears throat> and yet, at roughly the same time, or just a little bit later, it seems to me, the Lord Jesus wrote to seven ecclesias in Asia, Commending some of their members for holding on to the faith. And so Jesus perceived in those believers in Asia that there was at least one ecclesia that was holding on. And within the other ecclesias, despite much weakness, there were people whom he considered to be in fellowship with him. And the fact that he talks so positively about those minorities, and the fact that the Son of Man was still walking amongst the candlesticks of the ecclesias in Asia, I think that has to be uh, sort of mixed together with what Paul says here, that they had all in Asia turned away from him. I think, therefore, the emphasis is they turned away from him, but not necessarily from Jesus. That could have been for any number of reasons. It could have been that the huge mud campaign that there was against Paul, which uh, we know from how he tries to answer some of it in Corinthians and Galatians and other other letters, it could be that all of Asia eventually believed that. And so the image that we might have of Paul as the great leader of the early church, uh, held in the same respect that we might hold him in, uh, that is, I think, false. He died, in many ways, a a lonely man, rejected by the majority of his converts. Wrongly, but all the same. So, you see there that somebody can still be in fellowship with Jesus, and Jesus can look at them very positively, even though they have turned away from you. So, it's simply not true that... It's all so simplistic and black and white from our point of view. That is that if somebody turns away from us, if someone, whatever exactly that word apostrofo in this context means, apostatizes from us, turns away from us personally, that does not necessarily mean that they are not with the Lord. And so many times you unfortunately hear this said, oh, you know... Uh, They won't fellowship us. They treat us badly. They are aggressive to us. They, this, that, and the other. Ah, they're not Christians. And we judge them on their attitude to us. And that, I think, putting these two things together, that they had turned away from Paul, and yet Jesus was in fellowship with them, uh, that is clearly not not right. It's far too simplistic. And it's making us the... uh, the standard of other people's judgment. And I know it's very really difficult not to do this. So, the, fa- the fact is that misjudgments happen and things don't turn out as they should do in ecclesial life. And, yes, people do have wrong perceptions of others, even the majority, even all those in Asia, can be led, by whatever reason, to uh, into a situation where they are making a tragic misjudgment about you or about uh, other brethren or whatever. But this does not mean that the Lord Jesus is not walking amongst them in the midst of their candlestick, as it were, and even writing letters, as it were, of commendation of them. So then, let's just bear that in mind, because I... I I'm laboring this point, because so many people turn away from God and from Jesus in, in reality because of the bad experience they have had in churches. And that is multifactorial, I suppose, but I suppose it's uh, because people maybe come to accept the ex- existence of God or of Jesus uh, within the, 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 the frames of a church, uh, an organisation, an ecclesia, and when that goes belly up, very often their faith goes belly up as well. Now, whilst on one level we are to be like Paul, where he can say to the Thessalonians, "We live if you stand fast in the Lord," or have that love and passion he had for Timothy. No man is an island in that sense. Yet on the other hand, our faith in Jesus uh, and in His, in the Father is totally personal, because we will stand, in one sense, personally before him at the last day, and we personally will be saved. So then, that all, I think, ties in with the way in which Paul was willing to look at Timothy so positively. You know, he he says in verse 4 of chapter 1, greatly desiring to see you, and he uses that, that verb a number of times when he's talking to different uh, churches, Thessalonians, the Romans, um, and others, where he uses this word, greatly desiring. I so want to see you. I'm longing to see you. And it's actually the word that's translated in another context, uh, lust. This is an absolute passion that he had, to see them. Now, if we just retreat into ourselves, because we've been hurt and we've been upset and all the rest of it, and we just retreat into ourselves, then we will not have that range of emotion of wanting others. And so, the worst thing, I think, is when people come to the end of their lives, when um, they're sort of retreated into themselves, and... They're only thinking about their past hurts, and they sort of vaguely hope, I guess, that they will be in God's kingdom, Um, and yet they are somehow disconnected from the body of Christ. They may still go to church, but be disconnected in their heart from the whole thing. I see that so often, and it's so sad as you see, with Paul, who had every reason to feel like that, you know, all those in Asia turned away from him, and all the grief he went through from Corinth and, and the Judaizers and the rest of them, yet he has this passionate desire to see others and to be with them. And that's a far cry, I think, from the Paul who, when he was first baptized, pushed off into Arabia for three years. I think that he wanted to go it alone. But... By the time he comes to the end, he desperately wants his brethren. And we'll comment on that in, in chapter 4, particularly, where you see that in an almost uh, pathetic and tragic way, where he is desperate, really, for contact with his brethren, including Mark, who he'd fallen out with, uh, Timothy, uh, etc. And that, again, I think, is a <clears throat> part of the drive towards spiritual maturity, which, uh, which we experience. So then he encourages... Timothy, and he, he tells him, verse uh, 7, that God has not given us a spirit of fear, which it seems that uh, Timothy had, timid Timothy. I mean, fear really does mean, uh, that the Greek word for fear really does mean timid. Um, but he's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, or a, a self-controlled mind. And I suppose the desire to have a self-controlled mind... That really is the essence of Christianity. And he, he puts it off as an antithesis against having a spirit of fear, timidity. So it is actually a spirit of fear which actually leads to an uncontrolled, an undisciplined mind. How does that work out? Why should there be that antithesis between having an attitude or a spirit, an attitude of fear... And not being mentally disciplined. I think the fear ultimately which every believer has or can be tempted to have is the fear of rejection by Jesus at the last day. And I think he's saying, look, we have been accepted in Christ. We are not appointed under wrath. Verse 9, he has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. But according to his grace, he has abolished death, verse 10. Not that we are not going to die, but death in its ultimate form for us has been abolished. Because we will be saved. And so, because of that, we should not have a spirit of fear. And that is actually what gives you, by contrast, a disciplined mind. A self-controlled mind. And that, as I say, is what every truly Christian person wants. To have a spiritual mind. To be spiritually minded as you drive to work, as you go through the motions of cooking, child care, and all the other host of things that make up uh, the days of human life. To be spiritually minded. That is the essence. And he seems to be saying that you will not have that controlled mind, that self-controlled mind, that disciplined mind... If you have this spirit of fear, this spirit of nagging uncertainty, and we are here to focus upon the death and resurrection of the Lord, and in that, we take the message that, for sure, death has been abolished, and we have been saved, because of our status in Christ, not according to our works. As he says there in verse 9 down to down to 12. And so... Therefore, we can find this disciplined mind, because, really, if we believe that, that I personally will be saved, that I shall live forever by grace in God's kingdom, then your thinking will be about that. The wonder of that, of itself, will be so great, that it will take over. Is not the other way round, that if you can, by iron steel in your soul, self-control control your thoughts, then you might have the uh, hope of everlasting life. That way it's not going to work. And yet you notice that he seems to be saying that we have been given certain things which are in a sense a potential. He says in verse 6, ignite or stir up the gift of God, which I gave you, because God has not given us the spirit of fear. Uh, And uh, we have been given, then, he says in verse 6, in verse 7, we have been given a spirit, an attitude of power, love, and uh, a disciplined mind. And this is quite a, a theme, Galatians 4, 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Ephesians 1, 17 and 18, he prays that God may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened. So then, God is prepared to do something to the human heart. Let's not think every time we read about the Spirit or the Holy Spirit that we're reading about miraculous gifts and pulling rabbits out of hats and uh, things that go bang in the night and uh, talking in tongues and all this stuff. No, the arena of the Spirit's work, very often in Paul's thought, is, well, as he says, within the human heart. God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so then he has given us this new mind, this Spirit, and yet we still have to, as it were, activate it to uh, reignite it. And you've got the same thing there in verse 14. That good thing which was committed unto you, keep by the Holy Spirit which dwells in us. So, okay, he's talking again about this spirit, this attitude of mind, of holiness, which uh, God has put within us. But you've got to use it. Because he says, look, use the Holy Spirit to keep that which was committed unto you. And so... It's not automatic. It's not a bolt of spirit from outer space that kind of forces you to be spiritually minded. It's a potential. And God has put that in our hearts. And so, as we lament our lack of spirituality, we also have to remember, taking these verses and giving them their full weight, that true spirituality is not far from every one of us. And that is what I find... uh, The most frustrating thing about my own, as I see it, lack of total spiritual mindedness, that I also perceive from these verses and just a general feeling that it is not far from me. It's not far. And yet, we don't do what Paul is telling Timothy to do, to just stir it up, use it, uh, and put away this spirit of fear. And so then... As we look then at Jesus there in his time of dying and the certainty of our salvation, because that, as I've often said, is, is, I think, one reason why he died as he did. It is, as Paul says, to commend the love of God to us. It is to try to persuade we who are so slow in faith to really believe that we will be saved. In fact, that we have been saved, as he says in verse 9, uh, and that for us death has been abolished. And even the power of new life right now has been given to us. Right now. And so, knowing that and believing that, we will go out from this place not with a a spirit of fear, but with a spirit of power, of love, of agape, and of a self-disciplined, controlled mind.